One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello and thank you for joining us for a very special episode of Pete and Gary's Military History. There are a number of really important anniversaries coming up throughout April and May, so we thought, what better time to revisit some episodes we've done in the past to tie in with these key anniversaries. So please enjoy this special bonus episode of Pete and Gary's Military History. A Living History Production. I'm Peter Hart. And for the last 40 years, I've interviewed thousands of veterans about their experience of war. Join me on a journey through the pages of history. Welcome to Peter Hart's Military History. Hello and welcome to Peter Hart Military History Podcast. It's very complicated for me to remember the name of that. I don't know why. Uh, and today, today is one I've been really, really looking forward to. It's uh, it's all about the Battle of Jutland, thirty first of May, nineteen sixty. I, I can't tell you how uh, keen I am on on this subject. So um, that comes across, Peter. I'm really impressed with how you've put a lot of uh, preparation into this one. I'm really intrigued as to why you're dressed as a Japanese admiral. <laughs> Well, there you go. <laughs> One has to dress the part. I think you might find the Japanese played a minor role in the uh, Balagella, but yes, uh, yes. Do you like my peaked hat? <laughs> yes, I do. So, um, why are you so interested in naval warfare, Pete? It comes across you're really excited about this, probably more than any of the podcasts we've done so far. Well, it, do you know what? It, it was, it was, it's what I did at university. Uh, I did naval history. I did the Battle of Jutland, uh, the uh, naval warfare, eighteen ninety-eight to nineteen eighty. Uh, I did naval warfare in the seventeenth and eighteenth century as well. That was my thing, and I put it back to. I, I saw a film, and, and you must have seen it. Uh, it was uh, if, uh, it was it was a film that triggered it, and I saw it with my dad at uh, Stanhope uh, Pl- Stanhope uh, Town Hall, I think it was, and they showed Sink the Bismarck in about 1962 or something. You know, I was only a little lad, a little shaver. You weren't born. Um, and, and, and I watched that film. And the scenes, the sinking of the Bismarck, were, were, were just got to me. I just couldn't imagine as a little boy, and now as a dirty, great, big 65-year-old man, I just couldn't imagine what it's like to be in a ship that's pounded by huge shells where, you know, there's flames everywhere, there's, there's huge explosions, there's flensing steel whistling about the place. There's, and, and then the most horrible thing of all, trying to get out of a ship with the water coming in, uh, not knowing really which way to the, out, you know, and just knowing, knowing that you've had it as the water rises higher and higher. I just think, it, it, you know, it's just so awful. And uh, naval warfare, you know, you're all right if you're all right. But if anything goes wrong, Jesus, it goes wrong very quickly and not many survive. I'm not sure I've seen that film. What's it about? That's <laughs> why. <laughs> uh, so, uh, it's mainly about how this, uh, this director of naval operations gets off with a wren, uh, from what I remember. Yeah. As you know, I served uh, in the army, had a long and uh, very distinguished... Uh, career mostly in uh, guard housings um, but when I was a child I had a, a real fascination for joining the Navy uh, my father was merchant seaman uh, so I understand the fascination but I guess you know as a nation we are known for the Royal Navy so why is control of the sea so important to what was then the British Empire well, ever since the Battle of Trafalgar 80, well, that's, that's the, the time we cement it but our entire 
empire as it was is based on control of the seas. I mean, that's how we, we, we get the commerce in and out. That's that. It is all based on naval control. If you don't have naval control, you can't get to India. You can't get, you know, it, it's just everything is based on, 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 on control of the seas. And it's when we lose control of the seas that we lose bits of the empire. Hence, we lost our American friends. Uh, you know, that's the kind of thing that goes wrong if you lose, momentarily lose control of the seas. Uh, you have to control the seas to maintain the empire. Um, and it, it, you know, we we control the seas utterly from after Trafalgar. That was our thing, you know. Our navy was king. And who were we competing with for control of those seas? Well, the first thing was we used to have uh, the old. Uh, we used to always say that uh, the a rule of thumb: the British navy, the Royal Navy, had to be bigger. Uh, well, big enough to defeat the French and Russian fleets acting together. Uh, you know, that was that was our thing. It was, you know, because that, that was it. But the rise of Germany changes everything because Germany becomes the main enemy slowly. Uh, but then with increasing pace as you get into the 19th, uh, the, the, the 20th century, I do apologise, uh, you know, and... Um, and it becomes not so much them, it becomes we have to have a force big enough to beat the Germans easily, you know, without any f- fear of failure. So is that because the Germans as a nation are envious of our position in the world or is that the Kaiser's own um, fascination with the Royal Navy? And indeed, I think he was an admiral in the, the Royal Navy. I think you find that lots of royal families of various countries have things that they haven't deserved uh, or earned. But, yeah, he was fascinated with the Navy. He read Mahan, the American uh, naval historian, uh, he was. Uh, he re- he believed that uh, to have a, a real empire, you had to have a strong navy. I mean, he already had the, the the best, not the biggest, but the best army in the world in the German army, and he wanted to build uh, a navy that would give him. Uh, it was basically a, a, a fleet that was designed to be so strong that the the British couldn't fight it without losing their own preeminence. It was sort of you know a, a risk fleet. Uh, that, that Brit- Britain couldn't uh, defeat the German Navy without rendering it, you know, lo- suffering such losses that it would be open to its other enemies. Uh, however, that theory was rather undermined when the appalling nature of German diplomacy meant that uh, the the, uh, the allies formed with the French, our main two enemies, ended up as our allies against the Germans. So, you know, that didn't go too well for them. So is it, it's described as a naval race, which in modern parlance, I suppose, would be an arms race per se. Um, so, you know, you would think our natural position would have been alongside Germany rather than the French and the Russians. So was the naval race what made Britain change its position in Europe? It's part of a global picture because the Germans were threatening in other areas. Their economy was threatening us. We're not as nice and cuddly as people pretend. And the economic pressures from Germany, you know, the rise of the German economy was something that we had our eye on as well. We're not that nice. Um, but it's also, you know, the, the, it's just, you know, the, the Germans were so aggressive that we, we sort of buried our differences with the uh, French or, and, and Russians. Or I think hid the differences with the French, and you know, or, or, or sublimated them for a while, because the, the, the differences carried on. They were just buried for a bit. Um, the, 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 the rise of the German Navy, they kept building ships, and, and, and our response is, is quite interesting. Under, under uh, Sir John Fisher, uh, that we, we built uh, the Dreadnought. Now, the Dreadnought is fascinating, because what a way to respond with a completely experimental ship you know, although other navies were thinking of it. But I think we had a bit of a history with that. You and I both stood on the Warrior, which I think was 1862, and changed the world at that point. Well, I think, yes, that, that's true. We do. Uh, it bold steps, yes, uh, making sure. And again, that was to try and knock back the French, our then enemies. And this is the same thing. Great, great analogy. This is the big step. And, you know, it's got 10 12-inch guns instead of four 12-inch guns. It's driven by the latest turbine engines. Wow, wow, wow. You know, it, it, so it goes at, uh, what, 18 to 21 knots. It, there's always a little spread in how fast they go. Uh, it's got the armour up to the current standards at the time it was well armored you know and it is the first dreadnought and at a stroke you know every other battleship in the world becomes known as a pre-dreadnought you know often <laughs> it, it, the, the, it's in the name isn't it 
But it wasn't just the dreadnoughts, was it? There was the battle cruisers as well, oh. although perhaps not quite so innovative. No, because the dreadnoughts are 1906. 1908, we get the first battle cruiser. Now, this is Fisher's real interest. And the first battle cruiser is HMS Invincible. Uh, splendid name. We'll see how that goes. And Fisher's thing is that uh, speed will be their armour. So these ships could go at the speed of light cruisers they're 25 knots uh they're fast they are fast by the so they've got eight 12 inch guns so only a couple less than the dreadnought uh and they've got you know they're powerful engines but they have bugger all armor you know their armor is not you know they get because they've got these massive guns they get treated as if they're ships of the line that they can lie in the battle line you know uh, but actually they can't, because if they get hit by a 12-inch shell, it'll just go through. Now, the Germans respond to this as well, but they are a lot better at it. Their battle cruisers are, are much better designed. They're wider, which gives them more scope for more armour. They're, they're not quite as fast, but they're almost as fast. They're much better designed ships. They have the armour that enables them to withstand uh, the shells that they're going to be facing. So this, the, the, the battlecruiser step is a bit of a, a, a misstep for the British. Uh, and it leads to a world of pain that goes right from, uh, from, from when they first start in 1908 until, the, uh, I always say, the end of the battlecruiser is when the hood is sunk by the Bismarck, which we mentioned earlier. So is it fair to describe Jackie Fisher as an innovator, albeit that he got the battlecruisers perhaps wrong? Was he an innovative man? He was, he was. He was a gunnery specialist and, and he did innovate. He was eccentric and combative. combative. Oh, I can't say that word. Uh, but he was pretty punchy, you know, uh, and uh, caused a lot of upset in the Royal Navy throughout the, uh, the early 20th century. Uh, but w- w- he, I mean, he, he designed a lot of things or, or, or put in place a lot of things that were not... Um, thought through and uh, so uh, I, have amb- I am ambivalent about Jackie Fisher or John Fisher, I didn't know him that well No no, he was a great friend of mine So we've got the introduction of the dreadnoughts, you mentioned earlier that at a stroke everything else becomes known as pre-dreadnought so I presume you mean by that considered obsolete Yes, yeah, they were. They could no longer if they were, if they appeared in a battle line, you know, in a, a line of battle, they could get they, they'd be at risk. You know, they really would. The, the you know one battleship, one dreadnought was worth several pre-dreadnoughts. So introduced 1906, during the period, shall we say, leading up to the start of the First World War, 1914. What sort of manufacture production are we talking about how many were introduced on either side well we're to, uh, funny enough i don't know exactly uh, th- that's bad of me but uh, you know it, we've got a, just over 20 they've got sort of 16 now that kind of i i really don't know the figures but th- th- that's about the relative we have they have about two-thirds of the number we have uh, but we've got more imp- we've got lots of things and when the war starts you know, it's not quite as people imagined they would be. Because we had, you know, our fleet was, what, two-thirds, you know, uh, say they were about two-thirds of strength we had. But people are expecting something different at the start of the war from what they get. And our fleet at the start of the war is at Scarpa Flow? Well, yeah, the, 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 our admiral is uh, Admiral Sir John uh, Jellicoe. I'll, I'll be, put my cards on the table. I'm a big fan of Jellicoe's. Uh, mind like a steel trap, uh, you know, a slide rule sort of thing. It's just smooth thinking all the time, uh, unless he gets overtired, um, which, which, of course, the war does to him uh, eventually. Um, and uh, he knew, he knew in his dispositions at the start of the war, he knew that the Empire depended on the continued existence of what was then called the Grand Fleet, which he commanded. Uh, Nelson, when he fought at Trafalgar, there was another two fleets. But it was an all-our-eggs-in-one-basket thing with the Grand Fleet. Everything's there. If it gets defeated, if it runs into a submarine trap or a mine trap or it gets defeated, that's the end. There's no more Western Front. There's no more anything. Because, you know, the whole the first role of the Royal Navy is to uh, keep the supply chains open to the Western Front. And if, if it gets defeated, then that's it. It's not going to be able to do anything. So... His thing was that um, he wasn't going to take any risks. Now, the German thing, under a succession of admirals, von Paul, uh, Ingenol, is that they're not going to take any risks either. 
They, they are not going to come out and have a great huge battle because if they get defeated, they're not a fleet in being anymore. They're more trouble to the British as a fleet in being than going out and having some Gotterdammerung and some huge bloody battle, which they might lose. In fact, probably would lose. So they stay in harbour. Their aim is to reduce the British fleet by your old friends, mines and torpedoes, because that's the way to, to do it. And they were known as the High Seas Fleet. They were, yes, thank you, High Seas Fleet, yes. Now, uh, so the British based theirs, they had... The channel was blocked by a combination of mines, uh, uh, pre-Dreadnought forces, uh, uh, loads and loads of light forces down, you know, that basic... The mines basically do it, block the channel. And then if you look at the map, there's a bit at the top that's about 80 miles across. So we base, to stop people getting out, uh, we base our fleet in the... And then, you know, the Orkneys of the Shetland. Anyway, Scapa Flow. In those funny little Scottish islands, uh, I know we very rarely go north of Edinburgh, but uh, there are there is a bit more of the country up there. And these Scottish islands, Scapperflow, great naval base, and that's where the Grand Fleet is based under Jellicoe. Now there is a suggestion, and you know you may well correct me here, that the the genius that was Winston Churchill recognised what was coming and had, uh, I think, a, a summer exercises where the fleet was all gathered together and kept them together. Uh, is what's being described as his uh, major contribution to the fleet being ready for 1914. Is that true? Well, that's sort of true. I mean, they did have the exercise and they did keep them together. So, yeah, um, but I don't think much credit goes to... I never give much credit to Churchill, uh, I'm afraid. You and me both, frankly, at that point. Um, there's also the fact that if you look at a map, if you're Germany and, you know, you want to trade, you want to move your fleet... The British Isles in themselves are smack bang in your way. Bit at the bottom, 15 miles. Bit at the top, it's 80. It might be 110. I'm terrible at leasing. But there's not much, you know, you have to just block them in. Germany's going nowhere. Ship, German ships go nowhere. That's the point. By the policy we do, that's really good way. That, by the policy, Britain blockades Germany anyway. Block off those two ways and Germans are buggered. They cannot get... They cannot trade. They cannot get out. Uh, and so what you do is, you, our policy is basically the North Sea is contested. The Germans can get into that. We can't. We don't blockade. We can't stop them. We can't do anything there. It's contested. Both sides will fight and there. But the rest of the globe's ours. Once we got rid of the the German uh, squadrons that were around the globe, which didn't take that long. Uh, most noticeably Battle of Coronel Falklands. Uh, the Falklands did for, for, for the main fleet outside. And, and, and that's it, we control. So we've got a situation as we go through 14, 15, 16 that we have everything we want, really, except the North Sea. So they can come across and bombard Sunderland or whatever if they want, but then the, the, the great thing is uh, then and now the British government couldn't give a sod about Sunderland and the likes of that. You know, um, um, so uh, it, that's just the way it is. They eventually based the battlecruiser fleet under Sir David Beatty, who's a vice admiral or acting vice admiral, but later on vice admiral, at Rosyth in the uh, Firth of Forth, uh, you know, just across, well, diagonally across from Edinburgh. So, why, given the competition, you know, there'd been years of competition, the arms race, why no great big set-piece battle in 1914? Because neither side wanted it, and that's, you know, both sides have to want a, a great set-piece battle. The Germans wanted their fleet in being, so they're not going to risk it, they've got another tactic, and the British uh, are not taking a risk with their only fleet that everything, everything depends on. Jellicoe has been ordered not to take risks by the Admiralty. So, no big set piece, no Armageddon, no Gotterdammerung, no Der Tag, as the Germans called it. Now, can you tell me a bit about Jellicoe? One of the possessions that I have, I collect some minor things, postcards, etc., but I have Jellicoe's signature, which I'm rather pleased to have. It's on the bottom of a bill, I believe. Um, what was he like as a man? Well, he's, he's an interesting character. I mean, he's quite, he's, he's quite warm, uh, because he's liked by his men. You know, when he leaves the Grand Fleet, for instance, there's a huge, you know, everyone makes a real fuss of him. Uh, he'd, uh, people often think these First World War commanders are sort of appear from nowhere as, as elderly gentlemen. Well, uh, he'd, he'd, he'd been in trouble, you know, he'd been sunk on the Victoria. That's a classic uh, left hand down a bit. No, no, carry on. And 
collision with a camper down, nearly drowned. Uh, he was in the Boxer Rebellion, which is, you know, people think, well, that's not very... What's the Boxer Rebellion? That's not that serious. Well, Boxer Rebellion, he got shot in the lung. And uh, for the rest of his life, he had a bullet in his lung, which uh, is bad for you. It's a bit like the effects of smoking, uh, Gary. Um, you know, it's not good for you in the long term. Uh, so, and, and he was, as I said earlier, he's a very cool thinking man, uh, intelligent, logical, um, not prone to grand gestures. Um, Overcautious? We'll talk, we'll talk about it at the end, see how it is. But yes, probably, well, not overcautious, cautious, mm. I would say. So he's the commander of the Grand Fleet. Who's the commander of the High Seas Fleet? Uh, that, uh, that's, uh, well, in 16, it's Reinhard Scheer, who's come up through the ranks, you know, uh, very good, good, very good officer. And he decides to push push the envelope a bit, if you want, push the boat out, <laughs> more literally. <laughs> uh, and uh, he, what he's going to do is a sort of jab, jab, jabby thing. Uh, prod, prod, prod. So he's going to try and annoy the British into making a mistake. So try a raid on Sunderland. That, they never actually managed to do that successfully. But raid on Sunderland, you know, prod, poke, poke, pokey. Um, attack the convoys going across to uh, uh, the top bit, Norway uh, and uh, Sweden. You know, uh, uh, try, and, try, and, try and make the British make a mistake. And they, his whole aim was to cut off a bit of the German fleet, uh, sort of the British fleet, cut off an, an identifiable portion and destroy that so that it would make them more equal and more able to take on the whole of the Grand Fleet. He'd have to do that two or three times, realistically, to be, you know. But on the other hand, that's what he wants to do. So get a bit of the Grand Fleet on its own with a whole high seas fleet and annihilate it. That's his aim, and that's the aim he has at Jutland. Now, that sounds a very British thing to do. You know, if you take the British Army, for example, in the trenches, that was exactly the idea, you know, keep, keep active, keep annoying. That's a very British thing. Doesn't sound a very German thing. Was it because, you know, looking at the great German army, he was feeling that he needed to do something? I think you're right. I mean, uh, the, I mean the German army is fighting, you know, you know an amazing battle against everybody. <laughs> and, uh, and, uh, and, and the fleet sat in harbour. It could be seen uh, they'd had minor defeats at uh, 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 things like Dogger Bank. You know, uh, they hadn't really done much at all, and yet they'd been enormously expensive. One reason, you know, the, it, perhaps if they'd spent the money they spent on the navy on the army, they might not have lost in 1914. But the the, the, the Marne campaign. So you know, there's a very there's, they have to do something. They need to be seen to be doing something. And he, Shear is a fresh mind. He's more vigorous. He's just more energetic uh, naval officer. Who comes in and he wants to do something. So we've introduced Jellicoe, we've introduced Shear. You made a very brief mention of David Beatty. Now, <laughs> Vice Admiral David Beatty is not my favourite, uh, but sometimes I go over the top. He's a, he's not the brightest person in the world, but he's you know what he is is he's a good leader uh, in one sense. He's good at leading from the front. Uh, he's uh, an energetic officer. Um, he he's a bit of a blusterer. The thing that you won't like about him is that uh, although a stickler for discipline and, and uh, thing, he, he himself didn't wear a, a, a standard uniform. And there's loads of pictures of him in a non-standard uniform, which if you were a member of his guard and appeared with something wrong, you'd be on a charge, you know, that kind of thing. And I believe he was married to an American heiress. Yes, that did help. It gave him financial security till he kept dallying about and uh, dilly-dallying, as we call it, I believe. Yeah. And the thing about his uniform is well known. Uh, I think he was... Um, uh, I, I would describe it as a bit louche uh, in terms of... He was very proud of his uniform and he designed them, I understand. His own, yeah, little adaption. I, 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 you know, uh, but he, I mean, he was a competent officer... But he hadn't shone early in his career. But he got, he's got his break, uh, funnily enough, in the campaign against the Egyptians where he, he ran the uh, gunboats on the, uh, on the Nile. And there he showed lots of vigour and thrust, as they call it, you know. <laughs> and uh, he was also involved in the response to the Boxer Rebellion. He was, yeah, he was in the Boxer Rebellion. Uh, and uh, he didn't get shot, but he, 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 yeah, but he was there. More experienced, you know. So these, these officers have seen fighting. And did he know Jellicoe? How would he? Oh yeah, I mean, Jellicoe was very much his superior. I mean, they're, they're not equals in any way. Uh, Jellicoe is the man. Uh, Jellicoe commands the highest fleet. He's a full admiral, you know. 
so uh, I think we'll, we'll I, I think we'll talk about what happens. I'm not going to. We're not going to go through the Battle of Jutland step by step because it's a huge battle and it takes a while. Uh, it's going to take a while even. But basically, uh, uh, Jellico, uh, well, uh, Shia, Shia launches a, what's going to be a raid. It was originally going to raid. Uh, but then he decides to go for uh, just to go north and try and interdict with British forces uh, uh, in the uh, the convoy route to uh, Scandinavia. Um, what happens is that what he doesn't know is that a thing called Room Forty, Room Forty, can uh, can overhear and translate his his, his, his his signals. And so they know before they do. Uh, Room 40 also use directional stations, which is, you know, if a signal comes from point A, from point B and C, there are lines going out on that line, and where they meet is where you are. Uh, so, um, you know, they knew what was happening. And he sails, and, you know, he sails after Jellico and Beatty do. So they set sail on 20, uh, at uh, 11 o'clock in the evening on the 30th of May. Shea doesn't even leave harbour till half two next morning. So... We know that he's coming into the North Sea. You know, don't know exactly what he's doing, but we know roughly what he's doing. He's going north. And, uh, and, and Shear doesn't even know we're at sea. And isn't there a, a, a story, perhaps it is fact, that uh, some of the information was misinterpreted that was provided by Room 40? So, for example, it was thought that Shear was still in harbour. Well, this is the classic cock-up. And this is funny, of Director of Naval Operations... The same as was played by Kenneth Moore in Sink Bismarck. Uh, but this director of naval operations, um, there's no story about a wren, I'm afraid. But what he does do is he's a bit of a pompous ass. I think would be one expression for it. And he had no time for the civilian subordinates and, and, and the experts who ran Room 40. And so he, he stalks in there and he says, uh, where is the uh, Shears Wireless call sign DK? You know, and they say, Wilmshaven. Because that's where it is. What they don't say, because he doesn't give them chance, is, but when he leaves harbour, he leaves his cold sign behind. Now, I have to say that the expert probably should have said that, but Jackson should have established a relationship where he could be said. Anyway, he then, the, 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 then, the, the director of naval operations, uh, then tells Beatty and Jellicoe that they're not at sea. Uh, that the, the Shear isn't at sea, that the, the high seas fleet isn't at sea. So from that point on, as far as Jellicoe and Beatty are concerned, they're on exercise. They are just sailing through the North Sea, exercising. So this, I think, uh, is the 31st of May. Yeah. How do the two fleets actually collide because the suggestions from what i've read is it's almost accidental it is accidental because they don't know each i mean you know they, they don't know each other at sea um, what happens is uh, bt is well to the south 60 70 loads much further to south we're not going to get into precise distances or times because it's too much uh, so he's way to the south uh, and uh, and Hipper, we haven't mentioned him, but Hipper is commanding the German battle cruiser fleet. Uh, and uh, so so uh, now, what's his first name? It's probably lovely, but I can't remember. And his name's Hipper, von Hipper, it's an aristocrat. And uh, he's leading the uh, German battle cruiser fleet, and he's ahead of Shear. So you know, basically, each one is uh, you know uh, he's heading north. And, and so the first ones to meet are the two battlecruiser fleets. And how they meet is that it's an archetypal strolling player. There's a sort of Danish tramp steamer. With a lot of ships over there. With a lot of ships over there. And of course, the two sides sight each other. They're, they've gone to investigate this ship, and uh, and they see each other and start firing. The start, the firing starts right about two o'clock. We're not, I'm not going to go into times. It's it, it, it's too too difficult. And this is where the battle starts because gradually it builds up. You know, the light forces start firing destroyers, light crews. They're all firing. You know, and it builds up and builds up. Uh, now at this point, Beatty fails to concentrate his forces. He has got with him uh, uh, five or six battle cruisers. 
you know, uh, and he's got, because one of his battlecruiser squadrons has been sent to do gunnery training, he's got the fifth battle, uh, battle squadron, which are the super dreadnoughts. What a bunch of ships they are. The war spy, they're, they're not the Queen Elizabeth, the head of the guy, but these have eight 15 inch guns. That's bigger than 12 inch, you might have noticed that. Yeah, well, um, they are. Uh, yeah. <laughs> that's the old education for you, you know. <laughs> and uh, you know they're, they're made Malay uh, Barham. Uh, I can't pronounce Barham. It's got it's got a posh roll name Baham or something. But you know, uh, they 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 are the most amazing chips. And they have been assigned. They got twenty four knots. They're super dreadnoughts. They're the answer. They're nearly as fast as battle cruisers, but they've got fifteen inch sort of armor as well as fifteen inch guns. Uh, so they're they're there. And Beatty's meant to have them with him, but he leaves them five miles behind. When he hears that the, the, they've sighted the German battlecruiser fleet, he just dashes off. Yikes, tally-ho! Sort of thing. And he doesn't leave proper signals for, uh, for the 5th uh, Battle Squadron. Uh, who, who, you know, Admiral Evan Thomas, you know, he, he can't read the signal because it's five miles away, so he can't read it. Yeah, but and he doesn't on. send a wireless one. Hang on. Once they engage, he must have heard the, the noise. Well, and... five miles away. No, 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 it, it, but it, so basically, he, he is going left because he's on a zigzag. He starts going left and Beta goes off to the south, to the right. So, <laughs> so the five miles becomes six miles, becomes seven miles, becomes eight miles. And uh, this means that instead of having a superiority, he's, he's, he hasn't. He's basically got one ship more. Well, he's got uh, six battle cruisers and uh, and um, uh, Sheer, uh, sorry, von Hipper has got five, and this then begins. Now, this you'll like. Naval naval people are literal minded. If you think I'm literal minded, and, and you know they are very literal minded. So the next phase of the no, battle. Peter, I think you're feeble minded. Ah, I knew it was a word which you know had L in it, several L's. Anyway. The, the next phase of the battle is the run to the south. <laughs> now, guess which way they were going, Gary? Uh, north. <laughs> Excellent guess. <laughs> well, no, south. And uh, off they go to the south. They're in, in lines, so firing at each other. So is this in line with the plan? So Hipper must have been rubbing his hands together. He's got exactly what he wants. He's got a small, separated part of the fleet. And they're, they're following him. And they're following him towards the High Seas Fleet, which is sort of coming up from... They're still coming up from the, the south. They're heading south. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical new user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. And uh, so they've got the, uh, the, the, the Beatty's force with the 
Super Dreadnoughts, way a fifth battle squadron, way behind, but they're all following down. Now, as they as they as they're firing at each other, there's a le- so. Firstly, BT has not has not controlled his force properly. He has not concentrated his force. He's allowed by his initial disposition, which he swore to Jellicoe he wouldn't. And now they're running to the south. And at this point, they're 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 firing at each other, bang bang bang. But the fifth battle's got an aunt. They're way behind. And the first disaster happens at uh, 1602. I will be precise about that because I've just seen it. And here's a quote from a signal uh, farmer, and he's on the Indefatigable, uh, which, is, uh, you know, which is being fired at by the Von der Tann, a German battlecruiser. And he says this, There's a terrific explosion aboard the ship. The magazines went. I saw the guns go up in the air just like matchsticks. Uh, 12-inch guns, there were bodies and everything. She was beginning to settle down. Within half a minute... The ship turned right over, and she was gone. I was 180 foot up. He was up in the, uh, in, in the masts. And I was thrown well clear of the ship, otherwise I'd have been sucked under. And, 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 and he manages to survive. He's picked up by the destroyers. Uh, but do you know what happened to the others? 1,017 men on that ship were killed. You know, killed just like that. It, it, you know, um, not wounded, by the way. Not crippled. Not mentally scarred, just dead. And that's what happens at sea. When things go wrong, they go wrong quickly. It echoes your point that you made earlier about, you know, I think it takes a certain amount of uh, bravery, that, call it whatever you like, to be on board a ship. There are so many ways you can die and you can't hide. They're very brave men. And numbers like that to the modern ear are just incredible. You know, there's something on the national news if, if there's one death currently. Well, that wasn't it. That's not the end, because, uh, you know, uh, a few moments... You know, just a few moments later, the 5th <laughs> Battle Squadron's catching up. It's cut the corners, and it's starting to catch up. But before they can really intervene properly in the battle, uh, two of the German ships are firing at the Queen Mary, probably our best, uh, best, best gunnery ship, and it goes up as well. Now, this is the famous picture, which, I, I, again, Matt might put up on the thing. Of a, a, like, it looks like a bloody atomic bomb explosion, you know, uh, coming out of the Queen Mary. And this is someone who's on it. His name is Petty, Petty Officer. I think it's Edward Francis, but it's certainly Petty Officer Francis. And he says this. Uh, he's clearly deaf because of the explosion. Everything in the ship went as quiet as a church. The floor of the turret was bulged up and the guns were absolutely useless. I must mention here that there was not a sign of excitement. <laughs> One man turned to me and said, What do you think's happened? I said, Steady, everyone. I'll speak to Mr Hewitt. I went back to the cabinet and said, what do you think's happened, sir? And he said, this is a British officer, of course, God only knows. <laughs> I put my head through the hole in the roof of the turret and I nearly fell through again. The after four-inch battery was smashed right out of all recognition. And then I noticed the ship had an awful list to pour. Now, I made a joke about Lieutenant Ewart there, but Lieutenant Ewart went down into the ship into, to get everyone out and he killed. He was killed with it. Uh, um, and Francis goes up, and by this time, the de- you know the, the end of the sinking of uh, the Titanic in the famous film? Yeah. The deck's like that. It's like a cliff. And, uh, you know, he says, when I got to the ship's side, there seemed to be a fair crowd. They did not appear very anxious to take to the water. I called out to them, come on, you chaps, who's coming for a swim? And someone answered, she will float for a long time yet. <laughs> and then there's the next explosion, and uh, she sinks. And uh, Francis, of course, survives. That's two of the ships sunk. Two battlecruisers. Now there's, you know, now it's, I think, four all, you know. And, and this is dreadful. But by now also the 5th Battle Squad is starting to pound the rear ships of uh, Hipper's line. So it's all, you know, it's all in the balance. Uh, Beatty makes his famous remark, I think there's something wrong with our bloody ships today. But what's wrong with them? Uh, we'll perhaps talk about in a bit. But what's really wrong is he has failed to concentrate his forces. You know, in the rush of the moment. Um, did he do wrong? Well, I think he did. But, uh, you know, it's one of the things. So, why did our ships blow up and the Germans... I mean, the Germans were taking fire. It wasn't as if we weren't getting anything off. But they seemed to be able to cope with that. What was wrong with the ships? And why did we not learn any lessons from, example, Dogger Bank? 
Well, the Germans learned their lesson because the Seidlitz was almost sunk there by a flash in the turret, which went down into the uh, down through the loading chambers and into the magazine, and they bloody nearly were blown up. It was just they're very lucky they didn't. <laughs> well, different with with us, we didn't have that experience, so we hadn't learned. So we've not only got not much armour on our vital parts, we've got less than the Germans, but we've also got a system of loading which involves. Speed, because they were crap at gunnery in the battlecruiser fleet, they tried to fire as quickly as possible to make up for perhaps lack of accuracy. Well, that's all very good. You said, so what you do is you have all the, the things lying around you for quicker survival. And, you know, if you've got that bulkhead door, you, you tie it open so that you can get the stuff through it without opening and shutting it. The end result is that the flash goes down. That's why we blew up. It was a two, two things. The first thing is... Uh, is uh, that uh, the way we fought, we fired our guns, the discipline within the turrets, and the second thing is that the armour was penetrated. Now, I think the root cause is the armour wasn't thick enough, because in the end, the battleships, our, pre- our dreadnoughts didn't blow up because they weren't penetrated. The battlecruisers, the armour was not enough. So are you saying that you could ascribe some of that to the... the uh British military's competitiveness. It likes to have competitions the fastest to get the, the rounds off, that sort of thing. Yes. And that, well, and on the, yes. So they took shortcuts. They took, they took shortcuts. It's a very British thing, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. So, how was. This is all going on. What's Jellicoe doing? Jellicoe's just steaming down from the north behind. And, and by this time, Beatty's getting close to the high seas fleet. And when his cruisers sight them, then we switch to the next part of the battle. And I'm going to have to go quickly over this bit. Because what happens is he basically goes, handbrake turn, off back to the... In what, you'll never guess what this is called. This is called the run to the north. They're going the opposite direction, presumably. Yes, and they're bringing... Now they're leading Von Hipper and Shear, the battlecruisers and the high seas fleet, towards Jellicoe. So the, the position is reversed. Remember, Shear doesn't know that anybody's at sea. Nobody knows what's happening. And the only problem with this is that uh, signalling discipline again, Beatty's ship signals and doesn't signal possi- properly to the 5th Battle Squadron, who carry on sailing to the south. And there's this great gap of, you know... And this must be, you know, you can almost imagine... <laughs> Um, well, they turned eventually, and 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 uh, you know, luckily, luckily, the armour of the fifth battle squad, the super dreadnoughts, is such that in that next phase they don't manage to sink anybody. Uh, although there are some close shaves and there's some damage done to the ships. So during the next phase, they're running towards Beatty, uh, to, towards Jellicoe. Uh, you know, Beatty is leading leading them into a trap, just as he'd been led into a trap. Uh, at this point, this is where Shear and Hip had their best chance. If they had the battle cruisers and they had the fifth battle squadron, to, 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 to take out the fifth battle squadron would have met their their battle aims. That's that would have been perfect. But the fifth battle squadron was too strong. The armor was too resilient. They couldn't sink them. So was this a planned act of Zito? Did Jellicoe know that? Potentially, the high seas fleet was storming towards him. He'd been informed, but there was uh, one of Beatty's criticisms of Beatty was that the, the, you know some cruiser admirals were, were informing everybody of what was happening. Beatty was slow and uh, didn't particularly tell Jellicoe what was happening. Uh, you know, at the time he should have done. Uh, and Jellicoe's in the dark, and he's coming down in six columns. I want you to imagine six columns, each column having uh, a, a battle, uh, a battleship uh, a squadron, and he's coming down towards an enemy. He doesn't know exactly where it is, uh, and uh, at last he sights Beatty, and Beatty tells him where the Germans are, and he deploys. And in those moments, this is the great moment for Jellicoe. You know, if he makes a mistake. It's the end for the British uh, the British Empire. You know, he's got everybody. He's in six columns. The Germans are approaching. The whole high seas fleet in a line, you know, and he's not in a line. He's coming towards them. What's he going to do? And you, you get idiots like Churchill say he should have deployed on the, on the right hand to starboard column. Uh, well, that would have led him right in. He'd have been deploying into the high seas fleet, essentially. Others say he should have deployed on the centre column, except they hadn't practised that. I wouldn't like to do it for the first time. Jellicoe deploys on the left 
column to cross the T. Do you understand what I mean mm-hmm. by that? I think it's fairly yeah. obvious. So that all his guns could fire, but only the front guns could fire of the German fleet. And by deploying on the port column, the left column, he gets that position. He has a position where he can just destroy the head of the German line. And he also gets the best visibility possible at that time. One thing to make clear is that it's, it's May, end of May, 31st of May, and it's getting dark. By this time, it's after 6 o'clock. It's starting to get dark. Uh, you, know, it, you know what the North Sea is like. It's misty. So, good deployment? Brilliant deployment, in my view. Couldn't have been better. Uh, there's a bit of a disaster, of course, because you've got, you've got a couple of... You've got a, a squadron of armoured cruisers who are sailing ahead. Armoured cruisers are, uh, are death traps. They're not, they're not fast enough to escape and they've not got the guns to damage the enemy and they run straight into the massed fire. And uh, they, they, you know, the defence is blown up just like that, just blown up. They found the, you know, they always said it was blown to atoms, but uh, the the work of uh, uh, naval archaeologists, a group that, funnily enough, I quite respect, um, they they found uh, they found the ship, and it's not blown to, to smithereens, but it is badly damaged, and you know, uh, but it took down all nine hundred men. There weren't any survivors from, from the defence. Uh, the other ship that was hit is a, a ship called the Warrior. And I particularly, I want to just go to this, because this is the bit of, I was telling you earlier about the Bismarck, about being a, a six or seven-year-old watching this film and being horrified by this. And this is, this is a, 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 a quote from uh, an uh, engineer commander um, who, who's on board ship. And, uh, and he says this, I, I heard a tremendous explosion at the after end. A heavy jar went through the whole fabric and most of the lights went out. Now, that's the point. It's dark. You're beneath deck and it's pitch dark. Immediately after this was a heavy roar of water and steam. And my impression was we'd been torpedoed. You don't know what's happening. Several men came running forward from that end, one of them with blood streaming down his face. In that moment, I realised coldly what cold-drawn funk is like. In the end, dim and certain light, I perceived what appeared to be a Niagara of water at the other end of the, the engine room. And then, when they're trying to get out, he runs into a, a blazing corridor where it's all on fire. They can't get out of the armoured things, the, uh, the armoured trapdoors, not trapdoors, uh, bulkheads or anything. Uh, they're just trapped the, the hatches, the armoured hatches, and then just suddenly they get through a shell, a, a hole made by a shell, uh, and it's sort of like the, the anti-climax. But what, you know, and to me, being trapped like that must be awful. So that, the, 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 there's all this going on. The war spike goes in a great circle with a whole gr- high seas fleet almost firing at her, but she's got shells, and they said it was like bang, 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 bang on the side, but the shells didn't get through, and she survives the, you know, she... But badly damaged, but survives. Next thing is that uh, as the, as the, the, the right at the front of the British line is another battle sco- cruiser squadron and the Invincible. And I love this quote. It's from a German officer, Commander Passion, who's on a ship called the Sadlitz, a battle cruiser called Sadlitz. And it's just so German. Meanwhile, we had turned to the south, and suddenly there appeared, plainly and comparatively near, an English battle cruiser of the Invincible class. I cannot express the delight I felt at having one of those tormentors clearly in sight. And like lightning, the orders are given. The orders are given to good effect. They open fire and the Invincibles hit. The explosion is devastating and perhaps you've seen the picture. She snaps in two and ends up with the front and back. She's 600 feet long. The front and the back ends sink and are resting on the the, the bottom of the, the North Sea. And, and then they, they eventually topple. But can you imagine being trapped in one of those? There's only a few men survive uh, the, the, the sinking. Uh, uh, 1,032 men on that ship, uh, six survived. Can you imagine being in the front end or the back end? Uh, the water started to come through the voice pipes. You don't know where you are. The lights go out and you're just waiting, pitch dark, and water, grad, freezing cold water gradually filling the, the bulkheads. Awful, awful. And the irony is, of course, that she was the first in that class. That's it. At speed would be her armour, except when shells hit her. And up she went. I mean, it's terrible, it's terrible. Um, um, yeah. But that's the last bad news, in a sense, because then, you see, Jellicoe has crossed the T. What are the Germans going to do? And it's like the old goon show thing. What are you going to do now? What are you going to do now? And what Shear does is brilliant. He does a battle turnaround. Uh, uh, I'll read, uh, you perhaps read German better than me. A Geffert Wengdung Nack Starboard. 
battle turn to starboard. It is basically a handbrake turn. A handbrake turn, yeah. yeah. And the whole fleet, each one from the back turns around and they disappear. But the front ones have been badly battered by the, the fleet. At this point, they've disappeared back to the, to, to the south. Jellicoe goes on a bit further to the... Uh, I've always bad with east and west. He goes on to the east... Right, and then turns to the south. In doing so, he puts himself across the route they need to take to go back to Wilmshaven, back to Germany, back to safety. He is between them and home. Shear goes back to try and rescue a ship and runs into them again. This is hell on earth for the Germans. The front of the line gets battered. Once again, Jellicoe has crossed the T. The, the, the front of the German fleet is being battered to buggery. They really are being hit hard. And Scheer is desperate. He orders another battle turnaround, but also orders the battle cruisers and his destroyers to attack, uh, almost to cover it, all willing to sacrifice them. This is the, the pinnacle of the battle. And as they go... They, 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 they go forward and the, the destroyers appear out of the mist on, uh, to, to Jellicoe and launch their torpedoes. What is Jellicoe to do? So, in essence, what you're saying is, is he acted as if he was cornered. So he's ordered, she has ordered the attack, but presumably with a view to saving the battle crews, uh, the um, dreadnoughts. That's it. The main, the, yes, he's trying to save them to provide a screen, and he's hoping the confusion caused by this attack by the battlecruisers and the destroyers will give him time to get away. And it does. It does. Uh, the battlecruisers are by now, um, very few of their guns are working. They are really in trouble. Some of them are nearly sinking. Uh, but the destroyers press on. And as those torpedoes are coming towards the Grand Fleet, Jellicoe knows that the average British ship will sink if it's hit by a mine or a torpedo because it's just the way they are. <clears throat> What's he going to do? And what, He either turns towards... Because basically it's like some, they're coming towards him, a line of them. You either turn towards them or you turn away. If you carry on going in a straight line, you'll suffer a lot of casualties, or they believe they would. What's his basic premise? Safety first. Do not lose the fleet. Do not lose too great a proportion of the fleet. Even to destroy the Germans, it's not worth the risk. So he turns away. He's pilloried for this by many people, but my view, and most sensible people, it's the right decision. It's not death or glory, it's what is the best for the British Empire, and that's what he does. He turns away. And a quote is ascribed to him, isn't it, that uh, he was the only man in the war that could lose the war in a day. Yeah, and that's exactly what he does. So, by now, so the battle... Eventually, the Germans are still trapped. Jellicoe is still between them and home. So, the rest of the story, it's now pretty well dark. The German ships are blazing wrecks, you know. They've got fires, they're listing some of them. A couple of the Moltke and the Seidlitz are almost sinking. The Lotso is definitely sinking. Uh, the others are battered, really battered. Uh, how are they, Some of the dreadnoughts, the German dreadnoughts, have been really badly hit, the ones at the front of the line. How are they going to get home? But as darkness falls, that gives Shear his chance. He's got two or three routes he can take home. And I'm not going to go into them. Uh, there's one, go back and all the way around the world. Well, most of the ships would have sailed. That would be, you know, he could go the Horns Reef route, which is the straightest and most direct, or he can go down to the North Friesian coast, uh, past the Ems, mouth of the Ems. Those are his options, you know, right round the, in, into the Baltic, all that, you know. So he, what's he going to do? What's he going to do? He decides to go the straight route, because otherwise he's going to lose more of his ships. That entails crossing the British line. But it's night. Now, Jellicoe, knowing his destroyers as he does, puts his destroyers all together at the back of the line, out of the way, so they don't, in the night, fire on British dreadnoughts and battlecruisers. So he's got all his battlecruisers and, 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 uh, and his, uh, dreadnoughts, sorry, dreadnoughts at the front, and behind he has all his light forces. The route that Shia uh, sets goes straight through the light forces. And you'd think that this would be a disaster. So nobody opened fire? Well, some of them did, but a lot of it is the destroyers would see and they'd say, oh, ship looks like a Wiesbaden class. What, what could it be? Well, it's the Wiesbaden, usually, you know. Yeah. Uh, and, and what they do is, we'll signal. <laughs> Hello! 
Look, in flattering lines, are you German? So this is making a joke of something that's not funny. But you then the, get a response, presumably. A response is bang, 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 and the aim of the bridge as well. Take the so-called brains out first. So that's one scenario. You know, it's just the, the Germans had seen the British signals. They'd been looking. They'd passed it around the fleet, um, and and. Uh, it you know it happens time and time again on other occasions they think oh, i don't know what to do i don't know what to do i don't know what to do and by the time they thought the opportunity's gone when they do fire torpedoes they they retain some there they are with bloody battleships going past and they don't fire at them they've only fired one torpedo or two torpedoes they don't fire them all you know they retain them for a better opportunity uh the two of the battle cruisers go straight through the battle fleet because they they've got lost from the rest of the thing and they go and and there are battleship pre Dreadnought, sorry, Dreadnought commanders who go, well, we won't open fire on that because we'll give away our position. Yeah, but you could have sunk the Moltke and the Seidlitz. You know, the Germans have to sink the Lutzer. They, they, they open the, you know, they, they, they sink it, the sea, they open the Seacocks and sink it. But what's happening is Jellico behind him, there's all hell breaking loose, but nobody tells him what's happening. Nobody signals and tells them. And the one that, sorry, one does, and they lose, it doesn't get through. Uh, they're not good at wireless at this stage, none of them. They don't have, you know. And his men are too ingrained in discipline and obeying orders. They don't have enough initiative. It's, it's, a, it's an endemic fault in the Grand Fleet. And if, there, if Jellicoe has a fault, it's that he doesn't encourage initiative. So if there had been a little bit more flair, if there had been a willingness to engage, to give away position... Would that have given the victory that the British craved? Perhaps not the outright victory, but it would have sunk another couple of battlecruisers for certain and possibly a couple more of the dreadnoughts. All we do succeed is seeing that the Germans have tried to counterbalance not having enough ships by taking a squadron of pre-dreadnoughts to sea. And we, uh, one of the destroyers sank the Pommer. But in essence, the Germans get through the line. Room 40 again covers itself in glory by by telling Jellicoe they're on the wrong, co- the wrong course, you know. Um, that's just an understand- a mistake, a, a confusion which we don't need to go into. But the end result is they escape, you know. Uh, they have sunk, uh, they've sunk three of our battlecruisers, they've sunk uh, two, three, two, well, two, three, because it's sunk later, the warrior sinks. Uh, three of our uh, so-called armoured cruisers, although not much armoured at any use, they, they've, you know, um, we've only sunk one of their battlecruisers, their cas- our casualties are 6,000 dead. 6,000 dead, Gary. Yeah. And theirs are only uh, 2,500 dead, only. Uh, you know. Uh, and when they get home, they get home first, because they're nearer home. So the first press reports, everything, the Germans hide some of their losses, big up their victory, and, and say it's a fantastic victory. The Admiralty, when it gets, it doesn't know what to do, and it issues a thing that basically says, what happened? which doesn't look so good. And uh, there, there comes a perception that we lost. They try and correct that later on. But it ends up, this is the great debate, who won? And also, who performed well? You know, we've mentioned the admirals, who performed well? Well, that's the thing. I mean, I think, fundamentally, Jellicoe performed well until it gets dark. He, he, he made the right deployment... Uh, uh, he, he kept control. He made the right decisions when there were torpedo. When the torpedo threat was there, he made the right decisions for the British Empire. At night, perhaps he should have realised what was going on. But do you know what? Perhaps he was knackered. Uh, you know, he, he was getting on a bit. He was fifty-eight. That's pretty old. Uh, Still getting <laughs> the British Army at fifty-seven. Yeah. Uh, yes. <laughs> That's now. <laughs> yeah. um, it. it, it it's, I don't know. I mean, he he just seemed to have been overwhelmed. Perhaps he should have realised what was going on at the night. But up to then, he did fine. Peter, I don't think, did very well at all. Uh, he did perform some of his duty. He led, he led his men bravely, but lack of discipline with their signalling, uh, not performing uh, as a subordinate in, in passing on instructions, not concentrating his forces right at the start, despite clear instructions from Jellicoe. Uh, it wasn't Jellicoe's finest. Uh, it wasn't uh, Beatty's finest hour, really. Uh, you know, um, uh, much to his regret and to chagrin. Yeah, I think I agree. David Beatty's performance perhaps was 
uh, somewhat lacking. But there is criticism of Jellicoe and his decision to turn the battle, uh, the uh, dreadnoughts away. When, when the torpedo, as I mentioned, though, that, that he was always going to do that. That's what he'd always said. In 1914, he said if there was a mine or torpedo threat, he would not go into, he would not follow it, and he just did what he said he'd do, which had been approved by the Admiralty because that was what the British Empire wanted him to do. And I understand that, but was he too slow in turning them back? No, it was dark by then. I mean, you know, he was between them. He thought that that come daylight, there'd be the the second half of the battle. As it was, come daylight, they were back home, and he was just in this empty sea. So you mentioned the interpretation of who won. I think it's fair to say that the Germans probably won a tactical victory if not strategic. Well, they certainly didn't mean a strategic. Uh, yeah, tactical way. I mean, if you look at it, uh, I mean, th- they caused more losses. Uh, I think, actually, they were outmanoeuvred, but th- they caused more losses because of the nature of British ship, the British battle cruisers, and the way, and the uh, armoured cruisers, and the way that uh, our, the way that our gunnery was you know, the, the gunnery problems that we had, which were not just as I've mentioned. There are numerous gunnery, like our shells didn't explode properly, like uh, our armour wasn't thick enough, like the, 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 the gunnery discipline below decks we have covered. There's a lot of things wrong uh, with, with, with the way we... We had a lot to learn. Um, but, uh, you know, in the end, even tactically, our fleet was back at sea two days later. Uh, you know, we had other ships... That we brought out uh, the men. Well, men can never be replaced, not to their families, certainly. But there were other crews that. I mean, we went back out to sea two days later with a full-strength Grand Fleet. The Germans couldn't do that. It's nonsense to say they never came out again because they did. But their, their battle cruisers were not well. They were poorly. Uh, and uh, to a couple of them, it, the rest of the year, they didn't really come out before, you know, they, they were unable to sail for the rest of the year. The, the, the German fleet came out again, but it did not want uh, another full-scale battle. It hadn't wanted the full-scale battle it got, and it was even more determined to avoid it after that. And, uh, and Scheer eventually, after what happened, gives up on the idea of cutting off a portion of the fleet and advises uh, uh, unrestricted U-boat warfare, which in turn brings in the Americans into the war, which in turn, if you see what I mean, means even more certain that the, uh, the uh, central powers are going to lose, that Germany is going to lose the war. So just as a, a, an aside, I suppose, from a, a history point of view, why is there such a fascination with, with what could have happened with the battle rather than what actually did happen? Well, it's just the nature of it. Uh, yes, uh, historians do get led into... I, I think what happened was fascinating enough. And I'm more interested in discussing what really happened than what didn't happen. But even I go wash, wishy-washy off uh, to discuss things, you know. The, the thing was, it is a huge battle. I mean, it's bigger than... I mean, we talk about single-ship actions in the Second World War, that's a battle. Or a, a couple of cruisers meeting another couple of cruisers. Or the Battle of Matapan. Or these are, you know, they're, they're all skirmishes compared to Jutland. Jutland is a bloody huge, enormous battle. The casualties were awful. And also, I, I, I want to just go into that. I'm going off in one now. Because I've just, I just remembered the wounded. Now, there aren't as many wounded are there? Because you see, you're either dead or you're not dead. But there are wounded. When ships caught fire, people burned. And they, they thought they were all right. They weren't all right. As you know, if you get more than a certain percentage of your body burned, then later on you die. Uh, but th- this is a quote here of, uh, about uh, the Tiger. There's a chap called Victor Hayward, uh, Abel Seaman Hayward. He's on the Tiger. And he says, uh, what a scene it was. It was very much like that painting of the Victory's cockpit, you know, when ne- Death and Nelson. Uh, ill-lit with mutilated bodies everywhere. The few carts were full, all hammock places occupied. The remainder were lying on mess tables and the hard steel linoleum-covered legs. Pitiful, pit- pitiful wrecks of this terrible action. I stopped by the hammock of a seaman acquaintance of mine, lit a cigarette and put it between his lips. He'd lost both arms, but seemed remarkably cheerful. He'd almost certainly die of shock before he got home, though. And then another one uh, about... They went down into uh, 
inter, inter, below decks and the tiger, and uh, uh, Reverend Bradley was there. The sight was terrible. It's a considerable amount of body. <laughs> there in all of this, mixed up with the rubbish and debris, were bodies and bits of bodies. What had no head, as far as I could see, no, nor legs. The left arm was gone. The right lay near with its hand hanging off. It was a mere trunk, quite naked, for the blast tore the clothes off. You could feel the little bits of limbs under your feet as you walked ankle-deep in water. That's horrific. It is, and it just, you know, and actually the party he was with sloped off. He was meant to be rescuing the bodies, but there weren't bodies, there were bits of bodies. This is what naval warfare's like, and I ha- it, it fascinates me, that just the sheer horror, that, that just that it is incredibly violent. You know, it tears people apart, you know. Uh, so the battle of, you know, who won the British one? Why, the Royal Navy won. Why did it win? Well, the reason it won was, had the Germans managed to cut off a substantial port and destroy a substantial part of the Royal Navy? No. Uh, did the Royal Navy still control both exits to the North Sea, i.e. the... the Yes, they did. Dover Straits and... They still they were still back at sea two days later. Nothing had changed. If nothing has changed, the British still control most of the seas of the world. So Jutland was a strategic victory. The Germans did brilliantly. The German Navy is incredibly brave and, and, and to be admired. Their performance is remarkable at times. Some, some of the feats of heroism, which we haven't dwelt on so much, are, 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 are just admirable. But in the end, the British won the Battle of Jutland. Thank you very much, Pete. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavourless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well... Hello Fresh is your guilt free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Thanks for listening. Follow us on Twitter and Facebook to learn more about each episode. And if you'd like to support the podcast, you have a couple of options. You can buy us a coffee at buymeacoffee forward slash PGMH or consider subscribing to the podcast for only £2 per month and get ad-free listening and bonus content. You can find links for both on our Facebook and Twitter accounts. Sounds great, doesn't it?